Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance and direction on our study. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we have your word. What a tremendous privilege it is to have a completed canon of scripture, to have your word translated accurately for us in Bibles that we own, Bibles that we can read daily, and what a privilege this is. And we recognize that there are so many throughout the world who do not have the Bible in their own language, do not have a completed canon of Scripture, and there have been so many church-age believers who have not had this privilege. And yet familiarity often breeds disrespect, and there is a problem that many of us have, and that is that we take this privilege lightly. Father, may we be challenged to realize the importance of your word in our life and that it is through your word that you have determined that you will transform our thinking, that we may live a way that is Uh, consistent with your character, that we may live in a way that brings honor and glory to you. And as we study your word today, may these things be clear to us as we think through your word and think through its implications for our own thinking and our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter um, chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Now, this is our second Sunday where we have shifted to the King series. And there are some of you out there who are live streaming who missed uh, the last session, which was now about three weeks ago since I was uh, out last week. Uh, And when we first made the shift and exchanged our study of Revelation on Sunday morning with the first King study on Tuesday night. And so don't think that you somehow fell asleep and woke up and it's Tuesday night. It is Sunday morning and we are going to be here uh, for the duration. Somebody asked me at the Chafer Conference last week, well, was that just for one Sunday or is that, have you permanently shifted that? Yes, we have. And so if you're, you're not going to lose out on Revelation, it continues steadily on Tuesday nights and you can follow that uh, either here or you can get on the Internet and go to uh, the Google video link and watch the videos or download the MP3s or any of the other remarkable ways today that uh, technology is provided for us to uh, keep up to date on, on these, uh, these studies. Now, First Kings 17 has introduced us to Elijah, and it is my way of teaching where I don't just stick within a book or a study or um, uh, an epistle, but when we come to specific things that are going on within those books, studies, epistles, whatever it is that we're studying, I like to go to other scripture that enhances our understanding of what God is doing in teaching within those passages. For example, in our study in Hebrews on Thursday night, We have been studying in Hebrews chapter 9 and have come to a passage that related to the concept of our inheritance in Christ. And so we have taken about a month to go back and review the 
biblical teaching on inheritance and how that relates to the believer's future uh, destiny to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have emphasized from the beginning of that study in Hebrews that we are to live our lives today in light of eternity, that God is taking us somewhere. He didn't just save you to be in heaven for eternity so you could sit on a cloud somewhere and stroke a harp or or just sit up there and and wonder what had happened if something different had gone on uh, on earth. And people get all sorts of crazy ideas about what our life in heaven is going to be like simply because they, are, they don't take the Bible seriously and they don't really understand the purpose and function of God's training program for the believer in his spiritual life today in preparation for that future uh, responsibility to rule and reign with him in the millennial kingdom, and then on into heaven. And so God is preparing us for something. He takes us through a training procedure, and we get glimpses of that in the Scripture. God's doing that with Elijah in chapter 17. Elijah has been gifted as a prophet of Israel and the northern kingdom, and he has taken a dramatic message to the apostate king Ahab, in the northern kingdom who has taken the nation into the most uh, terrible and perverted form of religious apostasy that they had experienced to that point in their history. And so God is going to be true to his word in the Mosaic law, and he is going to take them through various stages of discipline. He already has to some degree, but at this stage he is going to bring a drought into uh, the land, and this is going to have economic consequences as any drought would, and there's going to be a famine, there will be a scarcity of product, which means uh, prices are going to go up, and all kinds of other things that are uh, not unlike our current situation and uh, with the economic crisis that we face in the United States. So there are certain parallels that are going on there. And God has sent Elijah to inform Ahab that he is going to bring about this drought and it's not going to rain again until Elijah says so. And then Elijah is taken by the Lord where he is going to be protected and preserved for about three and a half years in two different locations. That's described in the rest of the chapter, chapter 17. But what God is doing there in the way he so marvelously multitasks is he's not only protecting Elijah and providing for Elijah during this time while he is uh, disciplining the nation and taking them through this this uh, uh, agricultural and economic crisis, but at the same time he is using th- those events to teach Elijah and to train him and to increase Elijah's trust in God, and this will prepare Elijah for what he is going to do in chapter 18. So we see that God works to train us, to prepare us for future ministry. So everything that goes on in our life should be looked at by us as an opportunity to grow spiritually and an opportunity to trust God. It is a mindset shift that we should gain as a result of our study of Scripture. And so what I've done is we've shifted away from 1 Kings 17 for two or three weeks to look at this pattern of training that God has throughout Scripture. And I have gone to Philippians chapter 4 because this embodies some of these principles that we see in God's training in the life of the Apostle Paul and how he expresses these in terms of some important promises. Some of the most uh, significant promises in the New Testament are in Philippians chapter 4. And so we started looking at the first part of Philippians chapter 4, about, I think, two or three lessons back. And then last time, before we got into the eighth verse, as background for that, I shifted over to look at how God had called Paul when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 and how God had taken the Apostle Paul through a training procedure. And that then forms the backdrop for being able to understand how Paul learned 
the principles that he is articulating in verses 8 and following in chapter 4. Now, one of the things I pointed out last time is that the emphasis in God's training is on two things, volition and thinking. The volition emphasizes our personal responsibility. Every single believer is given the same spiritual assets at the instant of salvation. As I pointed out on Thursday night, this is a great parallel for understanding the uh, whole uh, free market economy and capitalism. Every believer is given the same assets, the same privileges. We have the Spirit of God. We have the Word of God. We are all equally blessed and given every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. But what makes the difference between one believer who succeeds and glorifies God to the maximum in his life and another believer who's going to show up at the judgment seat of Christ and have everything uh, burned up and have no gold, silver, precious stone, just everything's wood, hay, and straw. All his production is just relative righteousness. He's still saved, but he is without any spiritual growth, anything that has eternal value in his life, no capacity for the, for the future, no rewards. And what makes that difference is his volition, how you choose to access, to utilize, and to learn about the assets that God has given you uh, makes the difference. We see that same parallel in the whole issue of capitalism and a free market economy. Uh, the Constitution of the United States and Declaration of Independence emphasizes the fact that we all have an equal standing before the law. We should have uh, equal opportunity, but that doesn't guarantee equal results. Results are determined by volition and how well a person is going to uh, utilize his talents, his abilities in order to produce something. And so throughout Scripture, there's this emphasis on personal responsibility comes out of the first divine institution. And the second issue is right thinking. If we're operating on a fraudulent system of thought, if we're operating on a human viewpoint fantasy concept, uh, as a result of Romans chapter 1, suppressing the truth by means of unrighteousness, then we are going to become fur further and further divorced from reality. Because as any believer or unbeliever who rejects the truth of God's word, that creation is what he says it is, that life is what God says it is, and that the issues in life are what God says they are, then when we reject that and we live on the basis of our own construct of reality, then the uh, end result is going to be failure, and we are going to experience crises in our lives. And that is an opportunity to turn around and turn back to God and recognize that our way is uh, the path of death, as the writer of Proverbs says. So the emphasis in here is on these two, two aspects, volition and right thinking, and that's emphasized by the verbiage that we see in Philippians chapter 4 through 20. I noted last time there are seven imperatives. Rejoice, uh, let your gentle attitude be known. We're not to worry. We're to let our request be made known unto God in 4.6. We're to think on these things in 4.8. We're to practice these things in 4.9. Those are the seven imperatives. That's addressed to our volition. An imperative says this is what you should do, and our responsibility is to uh, follow through and enact those imperatives. Failure to do so means we're uh, volitionally irresponsible and we're choosing against God. Then we have certain results emphasized within the passage that if we carry out these mandates, then the peace of God, peace from God, protects our soul. It fortifies it. It garrisons it. It pro provides a protection and defense for our soul in verse 7. Then we have a the God of peace. Notice how Paul goes from the peace of God to the God of peace. The God of peace will be with us. He is the source of that peace. Verse 9 and as a result, then we can surmount any and every circumstance in life because we understand what we have in Christ. That's in verse 13. 
The emphasis throughout this passage is on thought. And we have a number of different words that have a thinking nuance to them. Now, that really strikes some people as being rather uh, odd or impersonal that when, when they hear someone say that the spiritual life is a life of thinking. They think, well, you're just making that cerebral. That's just too abstract. No, it's about thought. It's not about feeling. It's not about emotion. Those have their place. They have their role. But the spiritual life is about thought. You can just go through the scriptures and read how many times uh, we're encouraged to think about certain things, to have a certain mental attitude, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And these are all thought words. And so we have a, a number of thought words here in Philippians chapter 4. The word gentle in 4-5 is a word that ultimately goes back to having a, a ment- mentality of humility. It, it is not an overt gentleness. It is a mental humility that works itself out in a certain grace-oriented way of dealing with other people. Uh, our hearts and minds are guarded. Those two words are used somewhat synonymously in 4-7 to relate to think, the thinking part of our soul. We have the word to think in 4-9, um, uh, legizomai, to think on these things. In verses 9 and 12, we have two different words for learning. Learning is a thought process, exchanging bad thoughts, bad ideas for truth. Uh, we're to, uh, concerned is the word to be thoughtful in verse 10. The Philippians were thoughtful of Paul. They thought about his circumstances and his needs and provided for them. Uh, knowing is used uh, two times in verse 12 and again in verse uh, 15. So these words emphasize thought, which covers the passage. This is a passage about how God trains believers to think. And it is that thinking that is the basis for action. So Elijah has to learn how to think correctly about God and the way God is going to provide for him so that when he gets on Mount Carmel and confronts the false uh, priests of Baal and the Asherah, he's not going to be operating on emotion. He's not going to be operating on anger. He is not going to become fearful and threatened by uh, the opposition as he stands there against uh, 850, 850 uh, priests of the opposition and standing before the people, and he has complete confidence in God, and he's relaxed in God. It's because he has learned how to think biblically. And then there is one, one command related to discipline. Whoop, hit that button too many times. One command related to discipline, practice these things in verse 9. Practice these things. That entails discipline. It entails concentration. It entails focus. And if we're going to learn to think correctly, then we're going to have to learn how to make ourselves, discipline ourselves to think and apply consistently. It's not just a matter of, implementing it on occasion when it feels like it or when uh, we're tired of God uh, kicking us in the seat of the pants. It's a matter of being a self-starter spiritually, and as we'll see in one of the, uh, ver- one of the words used in this passage, a matter of, being, uh, of recognizing and learning to be, live our life on the sufficiency of God's grace. So the, we see this emphasis on thinking. Now, as a believer... We recognize that there are basically two ways to think about everything. Now, that may seem like it's an oversimplification for some of you, but there are only two ways to think about life. There is God's way and there's man's way. There is God's way and there's the devil's way. Human viewpoint is just a mirror reflection of Satan's viewpoint. Man's in, in his independence from God is simply imitating what Satan did in the original fall. And so as believers, we recognize that we have to learn to think as God thinks, that God in his thinking 
designed reality from eternity past, and he created things to be the way they are. A tree is a tree not because it just happened that way, not because that's just what came out of that first acorn, but because that is the way God designed that oak tree. And so God's thinking is what defines things and determines things to be the way they are. And man comes along in his arrogance and says, no, you know, I want things to be different. Well, the more we think things and act as if things are different, the more divorced we become from reality. Now, as believers, the challenge for us is to get our thinking back in line with God's, and that begins with the Scripture. We're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.16, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind, or we could translate that, the thinking of Christ. We can know how God thinks because God has told us. This isn't arrogance. This isn't um, uh, some sort of elitist uh, type of thinking. But we are told in the Scripture exactly what God would have us to, how he would have us to think. And the process of spiritual growth, as we've seen so many times, is laid out in Romans 12.2. If there's any one verse that I would go to that uh, characterizes my understanding of the pastoral ministry, it's not the verses that most people will go to. It's not uh, Ephesians chapter 4, 11, and 12. It's not some verse in the pastoral epistles. It's Romans 12, too, because Romans 12, too, lays out for us what the believer is supposed to be doing in his spiritual development, in his spiritual growth, and the pastor must be understood and should be understood to be the training officer that God gives a congregation in, to teach them how to think, how to learn from the Word of God principles of thought, principles of concentration, procedures for living the Christian life, so that when you get out beyond the walls of this church and face the issues and challenges of life, then you have uh, spiritual uh, armor, an armament, you have spiritual bullets that you can use to put into the chamber and fire at the details of life, and you're in control because you're operating on the Word of God and the circumstances are not controlling you. Now, Romans 12.2 says that we're not to be conformed to this world, and the word there for world isn't the word cosmos, which we normally would expect to find when it's translated world. It's a different word. It's the world, word ionos, which has to do with the thinking of that time period. So as you go through human history, there are different periods of time, different ages, and there's different ideas that dominate those periods of time. The, the Germans have a great word for this. It's the Zeitgeist. Uh, Zeit is the German word for time, and Geist is the word for ghost or spirit. And so the term Zeitgeist is the spirit of the age. And so if we're not to be conformed to the spirit of the age, the thinking of the age around us, one of the things that we should be aware of is what are the characteristics of the zeitgeist in our time? What is the spirit of the age? How have we been brainwashed from the time we were in the cradle up to the current time by the ideas and the values of the culture around us, the period of time in which we live, ways in which many of us are, are not real conscious. We just have absorbed these through peers, through parents, through professors, and we have to learn how to identify those areas in our own life that are really counterfeit doctrines that sound good, seem to be common sense, but they really aren't. And often it's because of word games that Satan's the master of taking words and concepts that are biblical and then just tweaking them a little bit so that they ha still uh, incorporate a lot of biblical truth, but now they've been tweaked and changed so that they're no longer uh, doctrinal. 
they have been changed so that man becomes the center rather than rather than God. So we have to understand something about the zeitgeist of our own age so that we can uh, take our doctrinal howitzers out and blow these things out of our mind. And that's part of what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 10 about taking every thought captive for Christ, not just the big thoughts, but every thought. So we're not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed, and that's the idea of metamorphosis in the Greek, a complete overhaul by the renewing of your mind. And I've often used the illustration of an interior designer, that when most people get saved, or when a lot of people get saved, wasn't true for my case. I was six years old. I didn't have a lot I wanted to change. Some people, though, when they're in their teenage years or in adult years, they recognize that there are some things in their life that are that have made them miserable, and they need to change a few things. But their understanding of the change is rather superficial. And we think that, well, when I get serious with God, he's going to come in, the Holy Spirit's going to come in, and he's going to redecorate. And we're thinking in terms of putting in some new carpet or changing the wallpaper in one room or some new curtains, new paint job. But basically things are, are pretty much going to stay the same because we're generally comfortable with the structure of our thinking, but we are just have some elements here or there that need to be uh, taken out. But the Holy Spirit doesn't show up with a painter and a wallpaperer. He shows up with a bulldozer because his job is to just take, clean off everything, wipe out the foundation, and reconstruct our entire way of thought. He's got to take out that human viewpoint foundation. We have one reason a lot of people think doctrine doesn't work, and one reason a lot of people don't really want to go to a church that teaches the Bible in any in-depth way is because they really want that their foundation of human viewpoint and their basic structure of human viewpoint to stay there. They don't want to give that up. And if you go someplace that really teaches the Bible in depth, then that, that, that's going to create a lot of problems because I have to give up things that really make me very comfortable and very happy. So there's a uh, complete transformation, though, that must take place, as indicated by this word, and it happens not by the renewing of your emotions, not by singing praise and worship songs to Jesus. Uh, It happens by the renewing of your mind, and the Greek word there emphasizes thinking, thought. So we have to dig deep into our thoughts. I had a seminary professor who used to say that it's hard enough for people to think, it's even more difficult to think about your thinking. And that's what this calls upon us to do. We have to not only change the details of our thought, but we have to change the structure of our thought. And that doesn't happen in one-hour, once-a-week messages or 20-minute sermonettes. It happens over a lifetime of commitment to biblical study and application. So we are to have our thinking transformed that it's for a purpose. It's not just academics. It's not just that we're enthralled by all of this new biblical information. But the purpose is that we may demonstrate something. It is, it is our testimony before both the angels and man. We're to d- demonstrate that God's will is good, acceptable, and per- perfect. And that's only demonstrated where, when we are enacting biblical principles in our life. So it starts with thinking. Now notice in Romans 12:2, Paul draws out this contrast between the thinking of the age, the zeitgeist, which I t- typically refer to as either paganism or human viewpoint. And there are many different facets to human viewpoint. You can have anything from Hinduism to Islam. You can have uh, overt religious activity in terms of various, various cults and various works-oriented world religions. Or you can have... Uh, what appears to be a non-religion, which is just another form of religion. Atheism is just as religious as theism. If you say God exists, if that's a theological statement, then to say the opposite is also a 
religious statement. If you say God doesn't exist, that's just as religious as a statement that God uh, God exists. To say that uh, to teach creation is, if you say that teaching creation is religious, then to ignore it or to teach evolution is just as religious. To say that this is not true is a reconstruction of reality that is a fantasy and will, will lead to a cultural and educational collapse, which is the kind of thing that we see in our own culture. Now, what Paul does here is something that is, that is uh, very important, and that is recognizing the principle that we often learn by contrast. We often learn by contrast. We often learn by, learn by comparison, comparing truth and error, because a lot of time error, a lot of times error comes packaged by Satan in a way that is very close to biblical truth. He even borrows biblical language. And a lot of times what we find in Christianity is because the people in the church have come out of a zeitgeist, come out of the zeitgeist surrounding them, that they bring with them to the study of the Bible human viewpoint terminology and concepts that sound similar to biblical truth and so the next thing we know, we have substituted a biblical concept and vocabulary for a contemporary vocabulary. But what we don't realize is that words mean things, and by making that just little bitty shift, often we have brought a Trojan horse into our thinking. And so we're just off-center and we're not biblical anymore. We've just baptized secular truth. Now, when we come to Ephesians, I mean, excuse me, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, we come to one of the great verses in the Bible that deal with the believer's thought and the importance of the way we th- think, the stru- not just the structure of our thinking, but the, the things that, are, that make up our thinking. And in that verse, Paul states, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble or honorable, whatever things are just or in conformity to righteousness, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, six characteristics, and then he summarizes them in two first-class conditional clauses, assuming the reality of these, if or since there is virtue there, if or since there is anything praiseworthy, think on these things. King James translates it, meditate on these things. New American Standard uh, uses the word dwell. It's logizomai. It's a word that focuses on thinking, meditates a good translation, captures the essence of the idea. It's what, we, what is to characterize, characterize our thinking. Now, when people look at this and think about what's, what Paul says subsequent to this in this chapter, we recognize it's talking about mental attitude and a way in which it is sometimes expressed is that this is talking about the believer's positive mental attitude, that the t- believer needs to think positively. But that is a loaded word that we should not use. The Bible never addresses uh, thought or anything in these concepts of positive or negative. The biblical truth isn't electricity. It isn't something physical that has a charge uh, one way or the other. And this whole idea of positive thinking is really a, a Trojan horse that has come into, uh, come into Christianity in many different ways. And now most of you, when you think of positive thought, uh, you're probably thinking along the lines of, of a statement that um, uh, Winston Churchill once made that relates to uh, uh, this idea. And he said, a, p- a pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity. An optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. And so we look at a quote like that and we say, that's great, that's thinking positively. Well, in one sense it is, in a general sense, but that's not what I'm talking about by positive thought. That's not what the term means. It really comes out of a uh, rich religious heritage. I just want to introduce this to you. I've covered this in some ways before in this 
I didn't quite get a chance to finalize all the details of this chart, but it shows some of the roots of what is called positive mental attitude. That's what I mean by PMA in the title. Positive mental attitude, positive thought, mind control. You may have heard of things like Silva mind control or EST, Earhart uh, sensitivity training, uh, the positive confession movement, health and wealth gospel, all these things partake of the same uh, ideology, new age metaphysics, and all of this. So this is, this is the roots, and the roots come out of the 19th century. They have roots in both Neoplatonic mysticism of Plotinus and Hinduism. And a lot of ideas uh, that you find in both of those, because there's a sense of sort of an all-soul or a pantheistic approach to reality, uh, reared itself in the thinking of people like uh, Emerson and Thoreau in the early 19th century New England under the form, uh, under the ideas of transcendentalism. And transcendentalism uh, was also linked with uh, European thought, Hegel and others in 19th century idealism. Now, in this same context, what you see in the 19th century is several other things that came up. One, one thing that came up was this area called New Thought Metaphysics, and I've got two pictures there off to the right. The first is of Phineas Parker Quimby, who lived and had a small school up in Maine where he trained a woman by the name of Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy, who was a founder of Christian science. And Quimby's whole thinking, he's considered the founder of New Thought Metaphysics, and he's he's pantheistic in his thinking. It's the idea that uh, your mind actually controls your reality. See, that's what positive thinking is. Positive thinking is not just being optimistic or confident about things. Positive thinking is really the, the idea that you can shape and determine your reality by the way you think. The creature dictates reality by the way he thinks. That's what it boils down to. And see, they viewed energy, a thought, as energy. And you could actually change other people and other things if you had the right thought energy. So it's all about learning. This is, you know, the physical reality isn't, isn't uh, it's just sort of an illusion. It's the idea I'm not really sick. It's just an illusion. Uh, the mind and, and spirit operates at a higher level. Uh, Mary Baker Eddy uh, partook of these ideas and merged it with Christ, uh, biblical terminology, and that became known as Christian science. At the same time, towards the uh, middle to end of the 19th century, you, you have the rise of theosophy, which is rather occultic and used a lot of astrology and spiritualism and things of that complete rejection of Christianity, absorbed a lot of ideas from Eastern mysticism. Founders were people like Annie Besant, uh, who's pictured there on the left. She was also a Fabian socialist. You see these ideas of socialism uh, and utopianism also run through these people. They're try- they, they've rejected a concept of total depravity and the fall of man, uh, bibl- biblical truth there, and they're trying to create their own, their own reality. So you have people like Andy Besant, Alice A. Bailey, who founded a um, publishing house that's called the Lucius Trust, which was originally Lucifer Trust, so you can make your own connections there. Um, and then the last picture, you have a picture of Helena Petrovna Blavatsky and Henry Steele, who were uh, uh, founders of the Theosophy movement. And then you have the merger with humanist psychologies uh, from Freud, Jung, Rogers, and Maslow, the whole idea that man on his own can, can make himself happy. That's at the core of this. It man is the measure of everything, just pure pure humanism. So you take all of these different ideas that were floating around and had their foundation in the 19th century in reaction to the Bible, and you mix them all up in sort of a witch's brew, and out of the other end you get dominant ideas that affect the church in the 20th and 21st century. On the left there, you have the development of the whole name it and claim it movement, otherwise known as a prosperity gospel or the word of faith movement. E.W. Kenyon was actually a disciple of a student of Phineas Parker Quimby's, and he just took all of this new thought 
terminology and baptized it with biblical terminology. He said that uh, um, uh, Mary Baker Eddy just didn't have enough of Christ in Christian science, so he just added uh, more biblical terminology to try to make it sound that way. And he, it's been demonstrated by numerous scholarly studies that his works, which were very popular among a radical fringe of Pentecostals in the 20s and 30s, uh, that his works were later completely plagiarized. I mean, word for word, I've seen pages compared, and they're just they're word for word pages. I mean, lengthy sections of uh, E.W. Kenyon's works were plagiarized by Kenneth Hagin Sr. Uh, Oral Roberts picked up on these, Bob Tilton, everybody else almost that's out there on a lot of these uh, Christian evangelistic networks. You take that, you combine it with a lot of Christian psychotherapy models which bought into these things, the rise of the modern self-esteem movement. Uh, it's not about self, it's about God. The whole self-esteem movement is the idea that if you just really appreciated yourself, uh, you could solve the problems in your life. And, that the, you know, the, the problem is that people just don't have enough self-esteem. And the reality is people have too much self-esteem. Hitler had too much self-esteem. Stalin had too much self-esteem. Nobody lacks self-esteem. Everybody's born loving themselves. That's the orientation of your sin nature. People say, oh, well, you know, I, I hate myself because I'm fat. Well, if you hated yourself, you'd be glad you were fat. You know, they'll say, well, I hate myself because I've just never succeeded at anything. Well, if you really hated yourself, you'd be glad you never succeeded at anything. You'd be glad you were a failure. Uh, you know, I just, I just hate myself because of all the decisions I've made. No, no, if you hated yourself, you'd be glad you made all these bad decisions. I mean, we just twisted all this around because of a, we've rejected the Word of God. So uh, it's not about self-esteem. That terminology has its roots in human psych, humanist psychology and everything else, and we need to quit back, taking uh, non-biblical terminology and baptizing it because we bring in a lot of stuff that gets incorporated with this terminology. Um, then you have it within the radical, liberal, metaphysical wing of Christianity, you have the influence of people like Norman Vincent Peale, the power of positive thinking. And his successor, Robert Schuller, who talked about possibility thinking. And this led to all these motivational, positive, no-sin churches. Now, you see, talking about sin is negative. That's not positive. So we can't talk about sin. And if we talk about salvation, we certainly can't talk about, about sin. And we just have to talk about things that are positive. Positive isn't true. Don't confuse it to what, what we see here is the first thing we're to think about in verse 8 is whatever things are true. Well, true means that you're a dirty, lousy, rotten sinner. And it's not like, uh, what's his name's book, I'm okay, you're okay. The biblical view is I'm not okay and neither are you. <laughs> but this has infected the church. I remember going to a church in uh, up in the Dallas area back in the mid-'80s and... Um, I was uh, interviewing with them, and one of the deacons who was a Christian psychologist just had the most screwed-up life I've ever seen just about, and I've seen a lot, so that's saying something. And he wanted to know if I believed in worm theology. Y'all ever heard that terminology, worm theology? No, Andy has. He's been around seminary a little bit. But worm theology comes out of a hymn. It's in our hymnal, number 188. You don't need to turn there. At the cross, it's a great Isaac Watts hymn. And even our hymnal, they, they've changed the, the words. And this, um, the first verse originally read, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? See, we're nothing compared to God. Oh, but yeah, we're something. We really have to honor ourselves. So you find all kinds of changes. Um, some hymnals will say, would he devote that sacred head for such a one as I? And ours says, would he, is a little better, would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? But that was the idea. You get rid of this warm theology because we're all pretty, pretty good. I mean, God loved us. And, and it's a perversion of the doctrine, the image of God and other, other aspects. And so we, we don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to talk about failure. We don't want to talk about believers losing out of the judgment seat of Christ. But see, that's all true. And so 
biblically, we're to think about those things. But what the world says is you have to think about positive things. So let's get rid of all that. We can't have all this negative talk about sin in church. That'll just scare people off. Well, maybe we need to scare those people off. And then these things come out in, in books that claim to have some sort of Christian orientation. You have several books by an author named Og Mandino, very popular in some Christian circles. Uh, among salesmen, you have Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. It's the same principle. Your mind will determine your reality. He's not just saying be optimistic, be confident, be disciplined in your thinking. He's saying what you think will actually cause things to, and people to change. And then you have the new book by William Paul Young, The Shack. Um, you know, I'm not even going to address that. You can find some pretty decent uh, book reviews of that out there on the Internet. What's appalled me is some pastors that I know who actually think that this, this book, The Shack, uh, has changed their spiritual life. Well, that shows me how doctrinally impoverished they've become. Uh, this, this book just, it's about a man whose life has fallen apart. His little girl, uh, gets, gets killed and he goes to this shack where he's supposed to meet the killer and then the Trinity shows up and it's just this aberration of a Trinity. You also have Oprah Winfrey's New Religion. All of these things are part of this, this, uh, new age, um, n- new age old lie. Uh, concepts. Now, if you want to read something that help, help you understand some of these things and the history of it, uh, Dave Hunt's book, The Seduction of Christianity, is, I think, one of the, one of the best books. I rank it up there with, uh, in terms of its significance with Morrison Whitcomb's book, The Genesis Flood. What the Genesis Flood did for creationism, seduction of Christianity should have done for biblical sufficiency and the sufficiency of God's grace. Unfortunately, the evangelical church was so enmeshed in psychology and um, uh, positive thinking mentality ideas that they just uh, they could not change. They rejected it. So our passage in Philippians 4.8, Paul outlines the kind of things that should characterize our thinking. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report. And then he shifts in two summary statements, if there's any virtue or if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate or think on these things. Now let's just go through these words to understand them. Alethes, whatever is true. This assumes that there is something that fits an absolute external reference point. Whatever is true, whatever conforms to absolute truth. Well, absolute truth resides in the thinking of God. And so if you're going to think that which is true, you have to have an understanding of the thought of God. You have to understand the word of God. And the word alethes has the idea of that which is true, that which is sincere, real, correct, faithful, trustworthy, genuine, or voracious. That's the field of meaning. The idea here would be that which conforms to reality, reality being defined by by God's word. He's, he's not talking about what's true for you. He's talking about that which conforms to God's thinking. We have a number of passages that emphasize this, passages like Psalm 31.5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. He is the source of truth. Psalm 119.142 relates truth to God's revelation. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law, that is the Old Testament, as it had been revealed up to that point, and of course we believe up to through the New Testament canon, your law is truth. Uh, Psalm 119, 151, you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. So if we think, our thinking is on anything that is true, it has to be with consistent with God's word. It has to come out from God's word. Psalm 119.160, the sum of your word is truth. Uh, Proverbs 3.3, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. So these are challenges to us that we need to learn the truth from God's word and let that shape our thinking and what we say, and then what we do. Jesus, of course, said, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. So he claims deity, he is the truth. And then in his high priestly prayer to the Father, he said, Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Your word is truth. So our thinking is first and foremost shaped by the word of God, so we know the thinking of God, and that is truth. Second, it is semnos, that which is honorable. Now, what's interesting is the overlap that we see in a number of these words. It's a very tight pattern. Uh, it's, it's honorable. It's that which is worthy of reverence. These words aren't used very much in, uh, I mean, semnos isn't used, but a few times in the New Testament. That which is worthy of a- adoration. It's venerable. The Oxford English Dictionary defines honorable as the quality of moral excellence or moral virtue. So if semnos is that which is honorable, it's talking about thought that is uh, consistent with moral excellence or moral virtue. We're not going to think about things that are not morally excellent or virtuous. And that fits with the next word, dikaios, which is the word for justice or righteousness. It has to do with the standard of God's own character. So this ties back again to the idea of semnos and truth. It's located within the character of God and it is located within his standards. So our thinking needs to be restricted to those things that relate to his character. And that gets convicting, so we'll move to the next one. Hognoth, which means pure or holy. Now there's a concept that gets a little muddy. But this word is only used a few times in the Old Testament. When it is used... Uh, In the Old Testament, it's used to translate the Hebrew word tahor, which is predominantly translated by the Greek word katharos, or clean. It has to do with that which is uh, ceremonially clean. And so an application of this would, for us would be to keep our minds on things that will keep us in fellowship so we don't have to confess our sins. It's a mental discipline. We are going to have thoughts come into our head uh, that generate from the sin nature, and we're going to have, and whatever your trends are, maybe that's towards bitterness or anger or hostility or resentment, or maybe it's towards uh, sexual lust or materialism lust or greed, something like that. We have to exercise the discipline and say, no, I'm not going to think those thoughts because that is going to wipe out my spiritual life. Uh, fifth word, prosphales. This is an interesting concept, uh, challenging to some of us. We are th- to think thoughts that are grace-oriented, that are kindly disposed to people. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't think uh, critically and truthfully about people, but we're not going to let our minds dwell on, the, uh, on what the idiots are doing. However you want to define Idiots and whatever group is currently causing you mental distress. So we're going to leave them in the hands of the Lord and move forward in our own spiritual life. Sixth, you did the same thing with the sixth word, euphemos, which has to do with words that sound well, speaking well, saying uh, things that are uh, more that are good and pleasing about somebody and not running them down, being critically, destructively judgmental. So we're, you know, it's the old adage, if you can't think of anything good to say about somebody, then don't say anything at all. So some of us would have to keep our mouths shut a lot more. Summary is that this is virtue. This is virtue, the highest of all moral excellence. If there's any virtue, if there's any excellence, then we are to keep, uh, think on these things. The last word, epinos, only God is worthy of praise. So the idea here is that the thoughts are those thoughts that are consistent, totally consistent with the character of God, which means we have to think about our thinking. Now, in this diagram of the verse, I've put a diamond in the middle because a diamond is produced by a tremendous amount of pressure or adversity on carbon, which is garbage. And God is in the process of converting garbage. There's that worm theology again. God is in the process of converting garbage into his glory. 
And he does that in our lives by taking us through adversity, thinking us through various pressures in life. And as we learn to think about those and react and respond to them on the basis of Bible doctrine, then spiritual growth takes place. And that's what Paul's talking about in this, in this chapter. It's filled with these words related to thought and related to mental attitude. As we think about these things, then God the Holy Spirit is transforming that uh, carnal garbage in our soul. He's flushing that out, and he is producing diamonds in our lives. He is producing gold, silver, and precious stones so that there is something of value at the judgment seat of Christ. But it depends on two things, our volition and our thinking. Now, I want to wrap this up, tie this together for you in the next couple of minutes. In Philippians 4, 9, Paul says, The things which you learned and received and heard. That's all the teaching process. Learning, you sit under a pastor teacher, you study, you take notes, you receive it, you accept it, you hear it, all the ways in which we go through the learning process. And then what he, what he says, what you saw in me. Now, he doesn't talk about all the things. Paul had a sin nature, and Paul got out of fellowship. He's not talking about the things you saw in me that I, where I blew it. He's talking about what the, the times in his life that you saw where I was emulating the truth, truth and how to, how to think this way. Uh, emulate me. I, I gave you a pattern I, as much as any of us can for being Christ-like. And the result, the God of peace will be with you. It's that mental attitude. As you implement this, the result is peace, which is tranquility, contentment, a relaxed mental attitude about the circumstances of life, no matter how bad they are, no matter how how empty your 401K is right now, no matter whether you have lost your job, no matter what has happened to uh, friends or family in terms of their health or loss of life, we have peace and contentment because we are, our minds, our thinking is focused on the Lord. And so the result of this is that Paul can say then, in verse 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Remember the command back in uh, verse 4 was to rejoice in the Lord always. And so now Paul is going to give an example of how he had this joy. I rejoiced, I had this mental attitude of joy in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me, and that is your thoughtfulness, that thought word again, your thoughtful, thoughtfulness for me has flourished again, though you surely did care but you had lacked opportunity. Now, in verse 11, he says, not that I speak from want. See, he's thanking them at this point for the fact that they sent a financial gift to him in order to sustain him during his imprisonment. And he says, not that I speak from want. See, I'm not talking about the fact that I had a low self-image. He said, not that I was focused on what I didn't have, not because I was despondent or despairing because I was in, uh, in imprisoned circumstances. And he says, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. That word content is the Greek word autarkes, which in many contexts means to be self-sufficient. But here his self-sufficiency isn't in his natural human resources, but in what God has provided for him. That's where we become content, happy, and at peace is because we understand God's resources and we are living on that basis. Now, he said the same thing last, I pointed out last time in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. And so he can conclude then in Philippians 4.12 and 13, for I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to do without. And we saw last time in uh, 2 Corinthians 11 how Paul had gone through all kinds of suffering as he carried out the plan of God for his life. He was rejected. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He went through the physical uh, difficulties of camping out along the Roman highways and the rejection from various uh, groups 
and being beaten at various times and in prison. And he says, I know how to handle nothing. I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. See, God took him through that training process so that he could get to this point and say, I have learned now how to relax, whether I have a lot or have nothing, to relax in every circumstance. He doesn't say, I'm learning to think positively. He's learning to, he's learned to think biblically. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And then in verse 13, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The doing all things is living in any circumstance. It's not going out and, and, uh, creating a successful business or uh, performing well on an SAT or some exam at school. It is, I can handle prosperity and adversity. I can handle uh, want. I can handle abundance through him who strengthens me. It is because I understand the assets that I have in Jesus Christ. But then he says, nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. Because they have given generously, financially, to his support, he praises them for this, that you have done well. You had, in other passages, he says that they gave out of their poverty. And he goes on to praise them about this. And in verse 17, he says, not that I seek the gift itself. See, he, for him, it wasn't about the fact that, boy, I'm really glad you sent me this financial gift. I can really use it. It's that what that shows has transformed your character and the spiritual value that has for your spiritual life is what's important. It's not that I seek the gift, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Now, just as a side note, I ran across some website this last week that I thought showed a certain amount of arrogance. Somehow this has seeped into some grace-oriented churches. And they were talking about the fact that not only do we not affix a price, to any of the materials that we put out there, but we don't want you to give anything. As if giving to support the ministry was somehow wrong, as if that financial support was somehow uh, a lack of grace orientation. That's not the attitude that Paul has here. Paul says, look, I'm praising God because you were willing to give. You were willing to give sacrificially, and that shows your spiritual growth, and that's what's important. This is a part of our spiritual life. And he goes on to say in verse 18, I've received everything in full. I have an abundance. I'm amply supplied because I have received the gift from uh, Epaphroditus. And then in verse 19, he says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's what Elijah's learning. That's what we need to learn, is that God is the one who supplies all of our needs to face any and every circumstance in life, but it comes through Jesus Christ, orientation to his thinking, orientation to the word of God, and walking by means of the Spirit. We have to learn to walk day by day, step by step. Paul went through that process. Elijah went through that process. And God takes each one of us through that process. We have to learn to walk by means of the Spirit, moment by moment, day by day, on the basis of the Word of God, thinking God's thoughts and focusing on that. That is what gives us the ability to relax in the midst of chaos and to give glory to God no matter what the circumstances are. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to be refreshed by your word, to be reminded of your faithfulness, and to be challenged by the truth of your word, that we are to think biblically, not think positively, not think in terms of uh, self-esteem, or not think in terms of these other human viewpoint categories that infiltrate the church, but we are to think biblically. We're to think in terms of your character. We're to think in terms of your thought. And everything that uh, comes into our thinking is to remain there only because it conforms to the truth of your word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would realize that, that the issue here isn't pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps and thinking the right things, but the issue is 
that first and foremost we need to believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he paid the penalty for our sins, and that by trusting in him we have eternal life. That right now, right where you sit, you can make that decision. You can exercise your volition to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation. He died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty. All you need to do is to accept that, to receive it, and at that instant, God imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Christ, declares you justified, regenerates you, makes you alive again, and this can never be taken from you. Father, for those of us who are saved, we pray that we'd be challenged by the things that we studied, these truths to, to discipline our thinking, to focus our thinking, that we may be strengthened in our thinking, and that we might not be... Uh, that we may not be distracted by the circumstances or the details of life, but that our focus would be you on the, and the eternal truths of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.